There are certainly unbelievers in this world that no doubt have a very low view of the church. Um, Judgmental, hateful, self-centered, all of those are terms that they would use to describe the church of Jesus Christ. And I don't think that there's probably anybody in here that would completely reject uh, all of those notions or all of those allegations. You don't have to be a part of, of Christ's church very long to begin to understand that the church is not always what it ought to be. Or as I think that Paul would say, is that, that we're not always behaving in the way that God, our, God would want us to behave. Now, even though it's not a surprise that a, a lost world would have a low view of the church, I think it is surprising that there are several or many of those who profess faith in Christ, profess to be a believer in Jesus Christ, and they have an equally low view of God's church. And I think that becomes evident in, in several different ways. I think uh, in, in the first way is through distancing themselves from the church, that there are some that claim to be a believer in Christ, a Christian, and yet they want to have anything to do with the local body of believers. Don't, uh, they, they say that they, they have no need of any kind of uh, 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 um, uh, official church or organization. They just they reject it altogether. And what they're saying in that rejection is that they're ultimately suggesting that they can do everything they need to do as a believer in Jesus Christ apart from a local fellowship. And just for the record, so you know, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible teaches that God has never created us to go freelance and be by ourselves, but rather to come and be a part of a local bodies of believers in Jesus Christ, to to not only live out this faith, but had others encourage us and for us to be able to work together. That's the picture that God gives us. But there are some who say they know Christ and they'll demean or they ultimately um, devalue uh, the church based on their distancing of it. Still others uh, demonstrate their low view by demeaning the church. And what I mean by that is verbally. They never have anything nice to say about the church at all. They sometimes will say nice things about Jesus. They'll even say, hey, I like Jesus. I got a t-shirt that says Jesus is my homeboy. I got no problem with Jesus. He's cool. He goes, the problem I have is with the church. I can't stand the church. And, and they'll sit there, and, 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 but for some reason in their minds, they're not putting two together, two and two together and understand that doesn't make any sense at all. Imagine for a moment that I wanted to be your very best friend. How blessed would that be, right? And I want to be your very best friend. And I come up to you and you go, hey man, you are awesome. It's just everything I've just noticed, everything you do, I heard you singing in church. You got an amazing voice and, and look at you. I've seen you work and your family and you got, you're just, you're awesome and, and you're amazing. And as you begin to sit there and go, man, I kind of like this guy. It was the same thing I said, but I can't stand your wife. Your wife's a moron. I can't stand being around her. I've got no use for her at all, but you're awesome, right? I have a feeling that I'm probably not really going to, this friendship's not going to go very far, right? Uh, I don't know that for sure, but I think it doesn't matter how many nice things I say about you if the whole time I'm ultimately demeaning your wife. And likewise, I think there's something really off for a person to say that they love Jesus, yet to verbally despise his bride. I think there's a third way that people can demonstrate. Those that profess to know Christ demonstrate that they have a low view of the church. And, and this is, is, is not nearly as obvious, but I think it's certainly as common uh, as the other two. And that's through um, disinterest 
and specifically the disinterest in the things that the Bible teaches about the church, the doctrines of the church. In other words, they get into a study like this one in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, and they look at it and they go, who wants to learn about all these elders and deacons and how you function and how, you know, what, who elders are supposed to be and what the church is supposed to do? Who cares about that? And they look at teaching like this and they believe it's insignificant, irrelevant, and out of touch. In fact, for a series like this, they would look at a series and say, man, this is just a colossal waste of time. Now, let me say this, for, for, for those who might have a low, profess Christ, but have a low view of the church, they might be surprised that Jesus doesn't share their view with them. Jesus has an immensely high view of the church. Why is that? Because he founded the church. He gave his life for the church. He, he, he commenced the church. He gave the church its mission. When Jesus speaks about the church, he, spe- he uses affectionate terms like his own body or his own bride. And what I love about this particular passage is it removes all doubt of God's view for the church because here we see just how high God's view is of the church by the descriptions, the three descriptions that Paul uses to describe it. Now, if you will, look at verse 14 just for a moment. Here we're gonna see these three descriptions of the church. Follow along with me. The Bible says, Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and the buttress of the truth. Now, if you're familiar with Paul's writings, one of the interesting things that he will do is he will actually kind of show his hand and tell the writers or who he's writing to, the audience, what he's going to do, what he's planning on doing, that he's planning to go to this place and to do such and such a thing. But Paul realizes and always knows that he's not sovereign, but God is. And that many times in his life, even though he had well-intended plans to go places and teach the word and to spread the gospel, that sometimes those plans were disrupted. And things would come up, things like shipwrecks or imprisonment or beatings or, or stonings. And, and all of a sudden, he realized that even though he had great intentions to go to particular places, God had other plans. And I think that's what's happening on here. What he's doing is he's saying, hey, listen, I would love to come to you, Timothy. I would love to come to you, uh, church at Ephesus. I want this, this instruction is so vitally important for your health and your well-being. I want to come, but I can't take a chance on something coming up and me not being able to share this with you. So he, underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words down in script so that you and I, even to this day, have them. They were that important, not only to that church, but also to our own. And so in this passage, what he's doing is he gives us, he's telling us, this is the way that you are to behave as a church. When we come together as a body of Christ, this is what we ought to be doing, in other words. And this is the key verse for the entire chapter. Everything that comes before it and everything after it is based on how we are to behave in the church. But now he does something really interesting. Because in this particular verse, he not only talks about, which he's done up to this point, how we should be the church and what we should do as the church. And he'll continue to do it after this, beginning in chapter four. But now he begins to give us insight of who you are as the church. And so he describes it in three different ways. First of all, he tells us this, that we, the church, we are the family of God. I love that. We are the family of God. It's what he means when he uses the phrase, the household of God. Now, to, to try to clarify, it's true. It's, it's true to be able to say that all people everywhere are part of the family of God, sons and daughters of God. And, and what we mean by that is that all people from everywhere, uh, no matter where they're from or when they were born, are, we're all created by God and created in the image of God. And therefore, that's what we mean when we say everyone is a child of God. But that's not what Paul has in mind here. 
When he speaks of the household of God or the family of God here, he's not talking about in the broad sense. He's talking about in a very narrow sense. He's talking about those who become the family of God through adoption through his spirit by placing their faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. That is not everybody. That is a a, a smaller uh, sample of all of humanity. That's who he's referring to as the family of God. The true members of Christ's church are adopted children of the living God based on them placing their faith in the Lord and the completed work of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean practically? Now, I want to be careful here because Paul doesn't give us any more. I wish he would. He doesn't give us much here, but he does let us know more in his other writings. So I want to be very careful. I think this idea of us being a family at least has two implications for us. And the first one is is that God is our father. God is our father of this household, which means that he's the boss. Right, men? Your father in your home. You're the boss. You let everybody... God is the father, meaning that he determines what is right and wrong. He determines, he determines what we will do. He determines what we will not do. He determines the responsibilities of everyone in the home. And, and, and just, just so that we know, um, this is, for the most part, theoretically, how it's supposed to work within our homes. We, you guys agree with that? Look, in men, you're supposed to be leading your homes. Look, I have a, 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 I have a home. <laughs> You'll be nice... That's probably nice for you to know. I have a home and my family, my oikos is within it and it consists of me and my wife and and six kids, one boy, five girls. Uh, We've got a dog, blue dog, and then we've got uh, two chameleons and a snake, all right? And uh, we don't know where the snake came from, but it's just in our house. No, I'm I'm joking, it's a pet. And so we've got this, this is in our oikos. And as a father, what I do is I bring direction to the family. I say what we're gonna do, what we're not gonna do. Where we're gonna go, where we're not gonna go. What we'll watch, what we don't watch. What we listen to, what we don't listen to. When we eat, what we eat. These are things that are directed towards me. Now we understand my wife is right there with me, right, man? And she's there to make sure two things. I don't run the family off a cliff. And number two, that my kids don't come to hate me. All right, that, that, that's her role in this whole thing. But the idea there is she's, there, there is a man who is over his household. Why? Because the people within that household, the children within that household were given life by the father. And because they were given life by the father and it's his household, he has the right to rule and reign and to lead and to direct. Make sense? Same thing with our heavenly father. God is the one who has given us a life. It is his household. It's not ours. That means he's the one that determines what is right, what is wrong, what we should do. Not you and I. We don't come to the house of God and say, okay, here we are. Now, what do you guys want to do? We open up the book, his word, where he is revealed, his will for us. And we say, here we are, Lord, your servant is listening. Speak. We submit ourselves to him. So it at least means that God is the father and that he leads. But it means a second thing. It means that you and I are his children And we are called to submit to his authority. And let me add one more thing. And to encourage each other to be able to do the same. In the the word of God, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 through 25, it says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near, 
Here's what we've done today. We all come from different backgrounds. We got folks who own companies and they're the boss. We've got the rest of us that are bossed right, right around. And we've, got, we've got the rich and we've got not so rich and we've got educated and not so educated. But you know what's interesting when we come into God's household is we all equally submit and bend a knee to our heavenly father who has give, given us all life. We submit to him. And then you know what we do as believers as we open up that book and the word of God is preached and we're submitting ourselves before him, you and I encourage each other as brothers and sisters in Christ to yield to his will and to obey what it is that he's calling us to do. I think that's a beautiful picture. I experienced this growing up in my own family. I had a brother and I had a sister and actually still have my sister. My, my brother passed, but growing up in our, in, in our household, um, we would encourage each other to obey my dad. When my dad came to faith in Christ and he would begin to lay down the rules, uh, I, this is going to be hard for you to believe. I didn't always like following those rules. I know I, you think I'm perfect. Uh, and so, so I didn't always like it. But here's what would happen. My dad would lay down the rules and then I wouldn't want to follow it. And then I would have my loving brother come up to me and put his arm around me. And he goes, hey, man, look, you're kind of acting up a little bit. You're kind of doing some things that you ought not to do. You're kind of breaking dad's heart. I can see it on his face. Man, he loves you. He's given you these rules not to hurt you. He's given these rules because he loves you. He's not going to keep anything good from you. He's not, he's not trying to be a killjoy to you. And all of a sudden, it was, it was, my heart was still soft enough to kind of listen to that and go, man, I'm sorry, and go back to my dad and say, Dad, I'm sorry. I, I know you did this thing. And then I would begin to repent, and I would do what was right. Well, sometimes my heart wasn't that soft, like all of yours, very, very hard. And, uh, and, uh, and it, was, it was very hard. And, and sometimes they would, my dad would say, this is what you're going to do. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to do that. There's no way I'm going to do that. Or he'd say, don't do this. And I'd be like, I'm, I'm going to do that, all right? I'm going to do it. And sometimes they would come, and my brother would go, hey, man, I don't think this is a good idea. But sometimes I would sit there and go, forget it. So that nice coddling and the reminder of the Father's love didn't help me to be able to get back and to submit to him. So you know what they did? They threatened me, all right? So what they would do is they would come up, and I go, I just want to let you know uh, that, that dad is going to be so ticked when you do this. And I'm telling you, it is not going to go well. He's going to kill you if he finds out that you are doing this. And now, they didn't literally mean that he was going to kill me, but the rest of you understand that. Like when you would say, dad's going to kill me if I end up doing this. What it means is it's not going to bode well with me. Anybody have that kind of dad, right? Not going to go better. And, and what I'm planning on doing is not going to be better than what my dad is going to undo through his discipline, Right? And so what is it saying? It's saying, hey, listen, you and I as, 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 a, as a family, we're a family. And here's what the family looks like. Every time that we come and we gather together, we open up the book. We open up his word. And, and I know sometimes that it can get a little bit dicey because we're just going verse by verse and, and chapter, you know, chapter by chapter. And we're working through it, but we're doing it because we believe that God is telling us everything we need to know on how we ought to behave through his word. So we want to be as careful as we possibly can with it. But as a family, even by your presence here, you're encouraging each other. We're encouraging each other coming and saying, it doesn't matter who you are. We're all children of God. We love you. You love us, but we must all submit, no matter what your opinion, no matter what your background, we must submit to the Father. Yeah, amen? That's where we need to be. So he says that we are a part of his family. You need to know you're a part of his family. He's the boss. We submit, encourage each other to do the same. Second thing, and the first point fires me up. The second one really gets me fired up. I might spit. I might kick. I might do something. Not at the same time because I'm not that talented, but th this fires me up. Second point, we are the dwelling place of God. We are the dwelling place 
of God. This is what Paul means when he uses the phrase, the church of the living God. Let me just say, first of all, that we serve a living God, and I praise God, the God we serve is alive. That Krishna is dead, Buddha is dead, Muhammad is dead, Jesus Christ is alive. Jesus Christ is alive. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's seated at the right hand of the Father where he's ruling and reigning supreme. And every second of every day, he is working that relationship out between you and him, between him and us and God. He's doing this for us all the time. I praise God that he's alive. And one of the joys of being about the Jewish people is this is what they would brag about, right? They would have t-shirts that would say, hey, look, our God's alive, yours is dead, all right? You serve a dead idol. We, we serve a God who is alive. The promise to Abraham was this, is that I will dwell among you. You will be my people and I will be your God. And so God promises that I'm going to come. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to dwell among my people and be with them. But the question is, where does he dwell? How does he dwell? Well, in the Old Testament, what we find is that he dwells within houses that are made of human hands. We, we look for a moment in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. And God says to Moses, specifically talking about the tabernacle. Remember the tabernacle, the tent in the Old Testament? God, 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 God lived you know, in, a, in a mobile home. <laughs> you get that right? Now, now, make sure you listen to the rest of what I'm saying so people don't go home and go, man, you say God lives in a mobile home. Yeah! No, I, I don't mean that. What I mean that here was a tent that was created uh, by man that you could pack up and you could leave as they begin to travel. And everywhere they went, they would unfold it and their God would demonstrate his presence within that particular tabernacle. And he says in Exodus 25, 8, he says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Later on, when the people finally get into the promised land and then they kind of set up shop, right? And, and they're in Jerusalem. They want to build a temple. And God gives very specific instructions to Solomon to be able to build this more of a permanent, uh, uh, more a permanent house for him and temple for him. And he says there to Solomon, he says, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So God promises as a blessing that he will dwell with his people. And let me say this to you very, as clearly as I can. There is nothing that God's people cherish more than the presence of God. There is nothing more than God's people cherish than being in the very presence of God. When Jacob in Genesis chapter 8, that weird dream that he has of this ladder. Do you remember the ladder? And as little kids, the, the, the teachers would always tell us, oh, yeah, then he had this la- dream of a ladder, and there were uh, angels ascending and descending, and they never really told me what the point of the lesson was because they never kept reading on. And the rest of it is, is this. He says there, he says, Surely the Lord is in this place. How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, he says. And then in Psalm 27, verse 4, David calls out, and he says, One thing have I asked the Lord. Let me ask you, if you could ask the Lord one thing, what would it be? Here's what David asks, a man after God's own heart. He says, one thing I've asked of the Lord that, that I will, I will seek out, uh, that, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He just wants to be in the presence of God. After the fall of man, it seems like all man wanted to do is they would look back on paradise lost and they would think and they would covet the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God in, in, uh, in creation, in the garden, and they wanted to get back there. How do we get back there? Now, fortunately for us, there is a new garden and a new earth that is going to come, new heaven and new earth, and we're looking forward to that day so that we live in that kind of closeness with God. But that doesn't mean that we have to wait. 
God still dwells among his people. But now he's no longer just dwelling in, in, in houses that are made with human hands. When we get to the New Testament, he doesn't align himself to any particular area or any particular building. What does he do? He aligns himself with those who have placed their faith in him. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 24, it says, The Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by hand. And then he goes on in 1 Corinthians, Corinthians 6, 19, Paul writes, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, God, living within you. You don't have the Spirit of God living in you. You are not been born again. He comes and resides with all who have placed their faith in him. Now, this is two things. Number one, that this is disturbing. Is it not? I mean, when God is residing within you, that means that there's nothing that you do or say or take part in that God doesn't know about, right? That's a little bit nerve-wracking. But isn't it immensely comforting as well to know that when we're not behaving in the way that we will, that he doesn't abandon us, that he is always and forever with us? So there's an aspect of that, but there's something else going on here. I don't think that's what Paul is specifically speaking or conveying. I don't think he's saying, hey, listen, you need to be happy because God dwells in you alone. He's talking about something corporate that happens when the whole body of Christ comes together, when a local body comes together. We see this in his teaching in 2 Corinthians 6.16. When he's talking in context of the church as a whole, he says, for we are the sanctuary of the living God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, Paul wrote, he says, you also are being built together for God in a dwelling place and a spirit. So even though God does rest in every believer and everywhere you go that he is there, there's a specific promise throughout the scriptures that when the body of Christ comes together like we are this morning, that God says, I'm going to manifest my presence among you in a very real way, a way that you and I can't find even in the study at our home. God works there, does amazing things there, but there's something unique when the body comes together. They, they come and they gravitate together. This is what we read when we get to Matthew chapter 18 and verse 20. Do you remember there he says, where two or more are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. Remember that? Now, I understand that the context is in church discipline. People are like, well, that's only in church discipline. I don't think so. I think the Bible's like, yeah, look, I'd love to join your worship service, but I'm only going to join if you're, you know, enacting church discipline on people. I don't think that's the point of the text. I think in the text, what he's saying is when two or more people, when God comes, God's abode is there. God is dwelling there in a very special, very real way. And what he says here in Riken says, one author, he says, Paul wanted to remind the Ephesians that the church of Jesus Christ is the real temple. The living, the living God does not dwell in temples built by human hands. He lives among his people, especially in their public worship. Whenever Christians gather for prayer and praise for the word and the sacrament, God takes up residence among them. To put it in the vernacular, God is in the house. Now, when I practice that, I want to say, God is in the house, but that doesn't work for me. So God is in the house. What does that do for you? That moves me. It encourages me. It raises my affection for him, and it raises my affection for you. And the fact that even though I'm experiencing him in different ways all by myself, that when I gather together with the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, when we come together, that God says, I'm going to be there. You be about my business. You come together and you be my family. You identify with me and you submit yourself to me. And you and I are sitting there underneath God's word and we're encouraging each other to obey. God says, I'm there. 
I'm there. It's why in the beginning of so many services, I, I, I'll sit there and say, hey, listen, I want to let you know that there's no other place I would rather be. You guys think that's just pastor speech. It's not just pastor speech. There's no other place I would rather be than with this body of believers on Sunday morning where I know that God is going to be present as we open up his word and submit to it. I love that. It's a very unique place. Now, it doesn't mean that God's not doing that all over the place. He's doing that as other believers are gathering in other churches all over the place. But you know what? This is my church. This is where, 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 where other brothers and sisters in Christ have come and we've determined to walk this path together. And we sense the presence of God in all of it. I know that um, Brooklyn Tabernacle, I don't know if you guys remember that. Jim Cimbala wrote the book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, years ago. Maybe you've heard of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. Anybody? All right. Uh, I changed the illustration. Nobody's heard of it. So uh, we've got some. Anyway, they're world-renowned, all right, vocalist and choir. You're like, but we don't have a choir. Tough. All right, so they're really good. All right. And so, so, um, uh, so in, when, I was in, uh, when I was in youth ministry, I decided that I was going to take, I love youth ministry because you can plan trips and then have the church pay for it. It was awesome. And uh, so I'd always be like, where do I want to go this year? Um, and it sounded real spiritual, but uh, I was like, all right, New York City, that's what we'll do. Let's go to New York and take a New York trip for our seniors. And so we were able to do that. And we went up there and on Sunday, of course, we wanted to be in the house of God. And I said, hey, let's go to Brooklyn. Let's go to uh, the Brooklyn Tabernacle. And so all the kids are like, what is that? And I'm like, oh, don't worry about it. And so uh, we went, and when you show up, the doors are locked, and, uh, and, and people are standing all the way around the block, like literally a couple thousand people waiting to be able to get in, kind of like what you saw here this morning, uh, thousands re- re- ready to, to rush in. And, and, and so just kind of all around the block. And so we caught in, everybody's kind of with great anticipation. And, and I looked at the people behind us and you could always tell, you know, people got fanny packs. You're like, you're not from around here, are you? No. And uh, they're like, why'd you come? Well, we want to hear the, we want to hear the choir. And the other guy's holding like one of Jim Cimbala's books. And he's like, I want Jim to sign my book. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. And uh, so, so we're kind of there. And then I look in front of me and there's this kind of this guy just kind of leaning up against the, against, the, um, uh, against the wall. And I said, well, where are you from? He goes, I'm here. I'm from here in Brooklyn. I just live right down the street about a mile away. I go, oh, really? I go, so this is your church? He goes, yeah. And I go, wow, what, what brought you here? What brought you to this particular place? Is, is it Jim? Is it, is it his preaching? Is it the music? I can't believe having music like this all the time. And he turns and he just simply says, man, none of that. He goes, I'm here because God's in that place. God's in that place. And I think that that's the kind of it. It's really hard when you have a church that's kind of, you know, kind of wear what you want. I mean, we got, you know, as long as everything's clothed. We, we went over that sermon a couple weeks ago. Um, but, but, you know, you can come in shorts and come and come in you know, untucked, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, you could do all those things and you're kind of like kind of laid back in your approach. How are you laid back in your approach but not laid back in your praise? I don't want to be the kind of church that it's, I even struggle because it's kind of like in some Sundays that we have, there's just people jumping up left and right. Look, if, if you've got a physical problem, we understand that. But sometimes it's, 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 it's like tag team. It's like 16 children in a family. It's like, got to go to the bathroom. Boop, boop. Next one, go. Boop, 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 boop. And people are jumping back and forth. There are people just doing crazy things. Open up picnic baskets, you know, eating fried chicken. <laughs> crazy things are going on. But what I desire more than anything is, is, is for us when we come together because of such a high view of the scripture and such a high view of God and such an amazing submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ and our loving encouragement, even tough encouragement to each other that we come and when others come, they sit there and say, God's in this place. In the scriptures, there's, there's a, you know, 
my wife and I, we took a trip here recently, and um, we went to a hotel. And uh, in the hotel, it's funny, I walked through the front door. My wife can tell you this. This is not preacher speech. I think you think I make this up. This is, this is like truth. I'm making, uh, I'll tell you when I'm making it up, all right? And so we go into this hotel, and I walk through the front door. Heat hits me. This smell hits me. And I'm like, oh, I'm in India. I'm in India. And my wife, she turns to me. She goes, what are you talking about? I go, I'm telling you, I've been to India a lot. This is India. It feels like India. It smells like India. Look, it looks like India. And right then when I say that, four little Indian boys just go right from India, just run right across into the thing. I go, I told you, right? And the place was owned, it was owned by, by an Indian family, sweet Indian family. And I remember sitting there and I go, you know what? The reason that I was able to identify that is because this is un- a unique, un- unlike anywhere else that I go, this is very unique from any other place I've, uh, I've gone. And what I want more than anything is this church, when we come together, for unbelievers who even come in and go, this is unique. This is different. It just seems different. The people are different. They do everything in order to be able to praise and to be able to adore and to be able to magnify who God is. It is different than anywhere else we go at any other time of week. And I want that not only for you and for me, but I want it for a lost and dying world who comes in peers at what it is that we're doing here. That they come in and they go, wow, it is strange. Not, 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 not weird strange, okay? All right, we got enough of that kind of strangeness. Strange as in, this is different. This is not like what I would expect in the world. This is what I would expect for something that is completely different than the world. I, I think we get an understanding of that in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 25. There, <clears throat> Paul is telling the people, there's people that are just kind of, the, the, the church at Corinth is just lost their mind. Everybody's you know, babbling in aesthetic tongues and they're all, all over the place. And Paul finally has to sit there and go, whoa, calm it down. He goes, lost people who come in are going to think you're crazy. They're, they're going to think you've lost your ever-loving mind. Just you know, get, get a grip on this a little bit. And then he goes and as he moves, he says, but when we behave in the way that God has called us to behave and we do what God has said and to function as God has called us to do, he says, lost people come in and they leave. And when they leave after repenting, they say that God is really among you. So it's not just for us. It's for a lost and dying world that we are and identify that we are the family of God, that we submit to him, but also when we come to this understanding specifically that we are the dwelling place of God. And for us, that matters because it's who we are. One more point I want to give you. One more is in the text. And that is that we are stewards of God's word. We are stewards of of God's word. This is what he means when he uses the phrase, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Now, this involves two specific aspects. What he's saying is, church, you're defenders of God's word. You are stewards of God's word. And that includes two things. Number one, that we are called to defend the truth. We are called to defend the truth. And, 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 and what that means is, that, that's what he means by buttress. Uh, some translations translate it foundation, but I think the ESV here gets it right, a buttress. A buttress is something that supports the wall, supports everything else. It, it's not the foundation, but it supports those things to be able to make, make sure that they stand steady. He says, what you and I are supposed to be in a lost and dying world is a group of people that hold the truth steady, that we don't change it every decade, 
that we don't change it because of the, the, because of the pressure of the communities around us and the world behind us, around us. We don't, we don't change it because it's going to draw more people into the church if we just lower down and water down certain aspects of the gospel and certain aspects of the truth. You and I are called to be able to hold firm and to be able to protect the gospel and to be able to protect the word of God. And one of the greatest ways we do it is daily submit and to be able to teach it to our children. Amen? So we are to what? Defend the truth. Second thing, we are to advance that truth. That's what he means when he talks about a pillar. When he speaks of a pillar, instantly the congregation in Ephesus would have known exactly what he was referring to. Because there was the temple of Diana. And within the temple of Diana were a hundred massive columns within that temple. It was the seventh wonder of the world. And a hundred of these columns stood six stories high. And they held up this massive, massive uh, marble ceiling, incredibly weighty. And, 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 it, and it flickered with that marble from miles away. People would approach the city. And the first thing they would begin to see as they went over the horizon was this glistening top of this particular roof. And he says, that's what the role of the church is. Not only to defend the truth and hold it steady in, in a world that wants to constantly change it and doesn't know what the truth is, but it also needs to be something that we, like those pillars, hold up for a lost and dying world to see. We don't hide it underneath a bushel. We don't hide it in a basket. We let people know what the truth is. And specifically, what truth is he talking about? He's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, look at this. We're going we're to land here, all right, in, in 16. Look at verse 16. He goes on and he says, here is the truth that we are supposed to be responsible for. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now, just hang in there just for a moment. What does he mean by the mystery of godliness? Well, first of all, mystery, when he talks about a mystery, he's not talking about something that can't be known or something that's very difficult to understand, all right? An example of a mystery like that would be, where do my socks disappear to? All right, that's a mystery. I, I put them in the hamper. My wife puts them in the washer. They go in the dryer, but they always come out with one pair missing. Nobody can explain that mystery, all right? Nobody understands that. That's not what he's talking about here. When he talks about a mystery, he's talking about something at one time was hidden, but now has been clearly revealed. What he's talking about is he's talking about the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Christ. Get this, go back with me to the fall. When Adam and Eve fall, you know what they hate most? What they hate most is that they are sent out of the presence in the dwelling place of God. And they keep wanting to be able to get back there and they're trying to figure out how it is. And then God sits there and says, you need to be righteous. You need to be like me. You need to be me in every way. And they say, well, how do we do that? And he says, well, here's my laws. These laws demonstrate to you how it is that you can be like me. You just have to hold to them and you have to hold to them perfectly. So they tried, man. I mean, they really tried. I mean, just you know, lying. They, they, this is two things they did. They begin to not only try to obey them, but they begin to build other laws around it to try to protect them not to break God's laws. And then they even begin to change the meaning of what the laws were that God offered them to be able to somehow, some way to have, make a self-effort for them to become righteous, for them to become uh, uh, godly so that they can be received by God. And so all this time, they're failing, 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 failing. They get to the uh, end of the Old Testament. There's, this, there's these, years, uh, the, the, these years in between Old Testament and New Testament where they're just down and they're like, we can't, we can't obey God. We can't do this, but we can't be with him unless we're righteous, unless we're godly. What is it? All of a sudden, you hear a new prophet. He comes on the scene and he says, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And immediately you begin to see exactly what this mystery was of how to take those who were unrighteous and make them righteous. It would no longer, it wouldn't be based on what their works were, but it would be based on the completed work of the son of God, Jesus Christ. 
And so that's what he says here. And I, I, we could spend a whole lot more time, but there's no need to. I think uh, here in 1 Timothy, he says, look, look what he says. He's talking about Christ. It was Christ who brought us godliness. He says, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. There's kind of a chronological picture of Christ's completed work. Now stop and think about the context just for a minute. The context is all this time he's been letting you know, hey, listen, this is what we're supposed to do. This is the way we're supposed to obey. This is the way we're supposed to function within the church. And he wants at this particular point to make sure that nobody gets the wrong idea. So the halfway point, he lays this down and he says, you're supposed to do these things, but I, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. You'll never be able to do the things that I'm telling you to do apart from the completed work of Jesus Christ. So one author writes it like this. He writes, why does Paul list these things? Paul's desire is to see the Ephesian Christians act the right way in the household of God. It was not simply to call to good behavior. It was a call to act in accordance with the truth of who Christ is and what he has accomplished through his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Those who have been saved by the gospel will live godly lives because and only because of the work of Christ in them. What I want you to know is that there are people that I meet every week that are trying so hard to obey God, so hard to be received by him and to be blessed by him based on what they're doing. They think at the very end of their life that one day there's going to be these big, this, this big scale and somehow they're going to be able to do enough things that's going to outweigh these good things and God's going to give them a thumbs up and say, come on in, buddy, you're, you're a good old guy. You're a good old boy. And the Bible has done everything that it possibly can to let us know that is not possible. Even the best things about us is this dirty, filthy, leprous rags. Even the best things about us is tainted with sin, which means is, is deserving of the wrath of God on us. So maybe you're sitting here today and you're like, here, I'm good. I'm, I'm trying to bring my family to church and I'm trying to be good. You cannot be accepted by God by your own goodness. It's only by the goodness of Jesus Christ. And if you come and you repent to him and say, God, I, I can't do it. I can't, I can't obey you. I can't do what it is that you've called me to do because my old heart wants all of this sinfulness. God changed me from the inside out. And the Bible says if you repent and place your faith in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, he'll not only save you, but he'll give you a new heart, which means he'll give you a new wanter, and then he'll place his Holy Spirit in you to give you the power to do the very thing that you now want to do to obey God. But it's not because you're good. It's because of his goodness. I'm gonna ask you to come, brother, at this particular time. And we're gonna pray. And I want some of us just to be able to sit back, just close your eyes and bow your heads just for a moment. Here's what I just want you to do. I want you to sit back and I want you to ask yourself this question. Am I in the household of God? Am I a child of God? Only way to be there is through repentance and belief in Christ. If you want to know more about that, I'm going to be down here in just a moment. I'd love to share with you. We've got counselors that would love to share more about that. If you know enough of it and you want to call out and say, God, save my soul, Jesus, do it right where you are. There are some as, as well who might be here and as you're kind of working through this, you might sit there and go, hey, you know what? God is with us and I'm going through a really difficult time and I'm really going through some really bad hardships. I want to remind you that God is with you. He's dwelling in you. He's giving you and providing you the strength of the very difficult situation in which you are ultimately in. And it's possible. You sit there and go, I can't do it. You can do it with Christ who is residing in you. 
You need to be encouraged in that. And then you and I need to be protectors of the truth. You and I need to hold to the truth. We don't need to bend to, to the whims of the world, but we also need to share the gospel with all those that are around. Hold it high. Maybe some of us need to begin sharing the gospel with our friends. We need to begin in our homes, with our friends, with those that we work with and those within the community. But all of this is only possible because of the work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Thank you for this morning and I thank you for this word. God, you are worthy of all praise. God, I pray that you would move in us. God, I pray you draw all of us to faith, even in either initial saving faith or a greater sense of faith by now knowing who we are as your church because of what you've done. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, stand together. This altar is open always for you to come and pray. I'm here if you would like to talk or you need counseling, but just do business with God where you are as we sing together. Let's all.